ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to ask you to stand with me as you turn in your Bible to 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and our text begins at verse 13. So whether you're here or you're catching us somewhere else, just go ahead and stand up now out of respect for the holy, infallible, inspired, and inerrant word of the living God. The apostle says, but we... Do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve, as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you, by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not proceed those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with a voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Eschatology is a word you may not use every day, but it's a perfectly good word. It's uh, really made out of a couple of Greek words which together mean a word about the last things. A word about the last things. I use the word here because as I look at our text, I think one thing that we could agree upon is this text here is one of the richest texts in Scripture in its instruction about eschatology or the doctrine of the last things. Just look at the many things that are said here. We are told Jesus is coming again in verse 15. We are told that dead believers will be raised from the dead when Christ comes again. We are told there will be a church yet on earth when Christ returns in verse 15. We are told that Christ's return will be marked out by unmistakable phenomena in verse 16. A shout, a voice of an archangel, a trumpet of God. We are told that the living and the dead will go meet Christ in the clouds as he descends in verse 17. We are told that believers will then be eternally with the Lord After he comes, we are told that the resurrection and the last day will coincide. That's just a few of the things this passage says. It is rich in the doctrine of eschatology. And here's the funny thing. This text is not about eschatology. Paul did not sit down to write this text to teach the church about the doctrine of the last things. He is not conceiving of the church here as a lecture hall as he gives them a a set of teachings or a lecture about the doctrine of the last things. This is practical theology. And practical theology is simply the taking of biblical truth and applying it to the needs of the church, its moral and spiritual needs. And you can see that that is the point of what the Apostle Paul is doing here. As uh, he says in verse 13, 
in the opening words in our text, we don't want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve like the rest. Well, what's implied here? What's implied here is the church is grieving, and the rest would be a reference to pagan unbelievers, and the obvious implication of the passage is that Paul is saying the believers in Thessalonica are acting in an immoral way. They are grieving over the dead like pagans. In other words, they are not living like Christians. And so what does the Apostle Paul do? He backs up the truck of eschatology and dumps it into this text for a moral purpose, a spiritual purpose, which is to teach the believer about their hope in Jesus Christ so that they'll live like Christians. Now, I can already go into application because this text though it feels entirely irrelevant to us here this morning, because I gather we appreciate the fact we are not here for a funeral. I have preached this text many times at funerals in the past, but we are not gathered here this morning for a funeral. And so as I read this text, some of us might feel like it just doesn't fit. We're here for worship. But this does fit. Because the text is not designed for a funeral per se, though it fits. The text is designed to teach the church how to act like believers. And to do that, the Apostle Paul picks up these rich threads of Christian doctrine about eschatology. And what that means for us is that doctrine is inseparable to life. Doctrine is not a bag of dry bones. I have heard people criticize Reformed churches for the longest time saying, you're just so into doctrine. As if it's a bad thing. It's bad to be doctrine. Being doctrinal uh, quenches the spirit and stifles the life of the soul. No, it doesn't. Because the Apostle Paul, when he wants to invigorate spiritual and moral action among the saints, he teaches doctrine. Because doctrine is what is to shape our life. And that's exactly what he does here for a moral and spiritual purpose. He takes up some of the strands of eschatology and he brings them to bear upon the life of the church so that they might live well. And of course, this is written for us too and for our instruction so that we'll have hope Hope makes all the difference in terms of living the Christian life. So I've entitled our text, Hope for the Grieving, realizing there's many themes and subparts to our text, and we'll try to pay attention to those as we go. But it really is hope for the grieving in order that they may live well for Christ in view of that hope. So we're taking two parts here, the promise and process, the promise and the process. Let's get a little bit into the context as we start thinking through the promise, and, and it would seem to me the context is, is kind of set up for us in verse 13, where we have this odd term, the asleep. Well, I'm pretty sure we're aware this morning that's a, a euphemism. A euphemism, and you know what a euphemism is? It's, 
it's a softer or nicer way to say something that could be harsh or unpleasant. For instance, uh, we say that somebody is in between jobs who just got fired, huh? We say that so-and-so um, is uh, sort of short on the truth when they speak to not call them a liar. We call wars armed interventions. Why? Because we have a propensity to be somewhat civil in our language. We do. And it's not just in English. This cuts across races and cultures and ethnicities over the course of thousands of years and millennia. For the Greeks and the Romans, when they spoke of the dead, they preferred to speak of them as sleeping. It was distasteful. It was unpleasant to, to use the word death, probably because they were a bit superstitious about it, because you don't want to mention such things in case it might come upon you uh, suddenly. So they like to speak of the asleep or the sleeping. But this is not an indication that the Apostle Paul has somehow imbibed uh, the, the Greek thought and language because the scriptures themselves use this. Matthew 27 talks about an incident that blows our minds right after the resurrection of Christ where it says that the tombs were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. Same language of the asleep there, obviously referring to dead people who had a momentary resurrection, if you will. The Old Testament uses this language. Daniel 12.2 speaks of those who are sleeping in the dust of the ground. Some will wake up to everlasting life. Some will wake up to everlasting contempt. You see, the Bible uses this language too. It is the language of euphemism, but when the apostle uses it, we have no trouble understanding what he's referring to here. He is speaking of death. And he will be speaking here, obviously, of Christians who have departed. The whole text is about addressing the particular issue of departed believers. And what he says about them is that they are asleep. And we use that language. We have to be very careful because the imprecision of the language has left it open for bad doctrinal misunderstanding because there are a whole group of people throughout the history of the church who have taught the theory of soul sleep. The idea that when the believer dies, he simply goes to sleep and he snaps back into consciousness at the last day. So what it says about the believer on this false, wrong doctrinal theory is that your death is nothing more than a dirt nap. And you spring back into consciousness when Christ arrives. But until that happens, you're totally unconscious. That's false. Jesus said to the thief on the cross next to him, Today you will be with me in paradise. He does not say you will be taking a nap. He says you, that is his soul, his person, will be with him in paradise. Obviously, Jesus is not speaking about the thief's body because the thief's body was put in the grave. It wasn't in paradise. The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, making a clear contrast and distinction between the experience of two different component parts of our person, body and soul. He says one 
is in the ground, the soul is absent from it and is with the Lord, at home with the Lord. So when Paul here speaks of asleep, he's referring to the body being in the grave. That doesn't mean the soul is unconscious. It doesn't mean the soul is dead. The soul is very much alive. It's in the presence of Christ in heaven with the redeemed. And so Paul is speaking here of the death of believers, and it is apparent that when Timothy has come back from his visit to Thessalonica, he tells the Apostle Paul about a problem. And the problem seems to be um, a kind of overwhelming grief about the loss or the passing of Christian believers. And so he says, I don't want you to be ignorant. I don't want you to be ignorant. I don't want you to be deficient in your understanding, as he says here in verse 13. And it's a perplexing thing to say in a sense because... I don't believe that the Apostle Paul is saying all that he does here in this text because he didn't tell him about it before. There's a whole set of commentators who say, well, Paul was barely even there in Thessalonica for any amount of time, so how would he have had time to speak about eschatology? But it seems to me, if you turn back to 1 Thessalonians 1.10, it's obvious that they had learned eschatology because he said it was a part of their conversion that they not only turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, but they turned to wait for the Son from heaven, whom he had raised from the dead. There's obviously an awareness and a knowledge of eschatology, the doctrine of the last things in this church. I'm not sure really it's a lack of information. What it is, a lack of skillfulness. It's a lack of wisdom. It's a lack of discernment. It's a lack of insight. It's a lack of knowing how to live for Christ and take doctrine and apply it to life. And so the apostle brings up stuff they know, and now he applies it. He says, I'm going to help you understand something. But this doctrine is to be taken up and lived. So he says, I'm saying these things so that you, well, you won't grieve like the rest. Grieving here is a very powerful term. It, it speaks of an inconsolable kind of sorrow. And you know what? It, it says something about this church which is important. Um, these Thessalonians had their lives upended and turned upside down and inside out because of believing in Christ. They had been pagans forever and ever. When they did, I said this before, when they went on to my heritage and figured out who their ancestors were, they found out all of them were pagans. They were all idolaters. They didn't know nothing about biblical truth. And when they came to Christ, they lost everything. They lost their families. And their family was replaced by the church family. These were the only people they knew they could count on in a hostile, pagan environment. Paul speaks of them having to endure all kinds of suffering and persecution for the sake of Christ. They knew these are the people they could count on. And so it must have hurt. It formed these very tight relationships with other brothers and sisters in the Lord. And to see them die shook them. They grieved deeply. They had all kinds of misunderstandings because of it, and they grieved so powerfully. The Apostle Paul says they grieved like the rest. They grieved like pagans. 
It was said of the Greeks that the best thing that could ever happen to you in life is to never have been born. Think of that. It was said by the Greeks that the best thing that could ever happen is to have never been born. The second best thing said by the Greeks to happen to a person is to die in their youth. They said the worst life was to grow up into adult years and to be conscious of the fact every day you are alive that you're going to die. They had no hope. And why would they? Their false gods had no power to raise the dead. They knew that. They were terrified of death. If you ever read Homer's uh, works, you'll remember some scenes when he goes down to the underworld and he meets the shades. So they call them shades. What are they doing but sitting there? Bored to tears, lamenting that they don't have life. It's the best they had. This is what the Apostle Paul meant in another connection in Ephesians chapter 2 when he said that those who were apart from Christ had no hope. And because they had no hope, they had no way to face death in the midst of life. One commentator includes for us a letter that's been recovered, written by an, an Egyptian woman in the first century, at the time this was being written. And she wrote to a family that had lost a small child. And she said uh, to them, well, against uh, such things, uh, nothing can be done. So she said to them, Basically, just accept it. Against such things, nothing can be done. And then she said, comfort one another. Against such things, nothing can be done. Therefore, comfort one another. Farewell. That's empty. That's almost worse than stoicism. There's no solace. There's no hope. There's no help. And this is what he's speaking of here. These Christians have been seized by a way of being emotionally and in their actions that was not Christian. And so the point of this text is to correct that with doctrine, to say, here's our hope, and therefore we want you to grieve as you ought. And by the way, he is not saying that uh, you shouldn't be sorrowful when a loved one dies in Christ. He's not saying that we should be stoical. He's also not calling upon us to be morbid. I have literally been to funerals of believers where everybody treated it like it was a party. That's sick. That's morbid. It's disgusting. And the reason it's disgusting is because death is awful. Death is horrible. It's unnatural that the soul is wrenched from the body. So, on the one hand, let's be clear. The Apostle Paul is saying, don't grieve like the rest. But he's not denying or forbidding grief. He's saying, when you grieve, grieve like a person who's in Christ. Who's grieving over somebody else who is in Christ. Grieve like one who has hope. 
like a Christian. So let's turn now to the declaration of the promise here as we find it in verse 14. And we can see the statement of hope here very clearly. If we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. And so it's very evident here that he's saying, first of all, for these people who are sleeping, God is going to bring them again. He accents very clearly here. Translation doesn't draw this out as best as it could. It says God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus but really, those two phrases, through him and with him, basically are saying that they are inseparably connected to Christ as mediator. They're alive in him. They are still partakers of Christ and his grace. And the thing is that God is collecting them. They're in his presence. They are there for his worship. But the time is coming when they will be raised to life. But notice it feels like it's conditional, doesn't it? Look at verse 14. For if we believe that Jesus rose, died and rose again. And it speaks here of something that's very important to us as believers. In fact, it speaks of something that's very important to the Christian faith. And it's called necessary and essential. Necessary and essential. It is necessary to believe that Jesus died and rose again for salvation, isn't it? The Bible tells us that. In fact, we can look at these terms, that Jesus died and Jesus rose, and we can say, this is a makeshift summary of the gospel message. Go over 1 Corinthians 15 if you don't believe me. Paul lays it out there, the first few verses. This is a summary of, of gospel hope, and it's necessary that we believe in it. But essential is something different. Essential is something different. It's an addition to, and the addition to it is not just that we believe in it, but that it's true. People believe and hope in all kinds of goofy things. That doesn't mean anything. What matters is that the object of our belief and the object of our faith and the object of our hope is true. And what uh, the Apostle Paul is saying here, which is that the bedrock of Christian hope is not so much the fact that we're believing it, that is necessary, but the bedrock of hope is this, that Jesus really did die. And what's more is that he rose again. We are probably so numb to hearing he rose it's hard for us to hear it like we are. The Apostle Paul does something for us which puts it all in the line in 1 Corinthians 15 when he says, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless and you're in your sins. That's how we need to hear Jesus rose. Every time we hear it, we need to not be numb and callous to it because it's something we heard from our mama when we were sitting on her knee. When we hear the message that Jesus rose again, we should always hear from this perspective of the Apostle Paul, if he did not, it's worthless. It reminds us every time we read that text that Christianity is not a religion. Christianity is not a set of words and phrases and doctrines and ceremonies and, and worship and, 
and uh, formalities and pleasantries and memberships that all mean very little. They're simply just an elaborate coping mechanism for death. That's what Freud said. And this is what the world around us basically says and thinks when it looks at you, clearing off your calendar on the Lord's day to meet with him. That's their crutch. That's what they need. They've got theirs. They might just be going to Starbucks. That's their coping mechanism. Go having some entertainment and recreation. Go to the beach. Watch football. Everybody's got their mechanism. That's not what the apostle teaches. If we believe, in other words, he says, if these are true, everything's different. Everything has changed. And so he proclaims what is foundational to us. Not just that we believe it, we must. But we believe in something that happened. And because it happened, it changes absolutely everything. It means we're not to be like the rest. We're not to feel like the rest. We're not to think like the rest. We're not to act like the rest. The fact of Jesus' death and resurrection changes everything for us. And so... That's the promise. The promise is stated pretty clearly here that um, those who have fallen asleep, God will bring with them. But before I go into that, can I just be very frank here this morning? And the frankness is simply this, that I have stressed this again and again because I have been so profoundly struck by the point and I want to take what is specific and make it general because we are entitled to there is a moral and spiritual problem going on in the church of Thessalonica, and Paul addresses it with doctrine. It is the most grotesque thing in the world that if it does really mean for us to be Reformed Christians that we're the frozen chosen, that we're wrong. If we think the glory and the joy of being reformed is that we get to turn the church into a giant debating club, we missed it. If stressing doctrine for us is simply about being right, we got it wrong. Because what the Apostle Paul does here is he brings doctrine up and he says it is to affect absolutely everything about you. Your doctrine isn't compartmentalized for the life of the mind to enjoy. It should, but there's more to it than that. What he says here is that your mind is to be affected by it. Your emotions are to be affected by it. Your decisions, your actions are to be affected by it. He draws all of that into the scope of what he addresses here with doctrine. Now, I say that we're entitled to take what's specific and say at a general level, that should happen for all of us about our doctrine then. We confess that the Son is of one substance with the Father, don't we? We say it regularly in our reading of the Nicene definition. But if that doesn't provoke the deepest sense of adoration within us, we didn't get it. 
to confess the realities of the Holy Trinity as best we can according to the word of God ought to provoke and stimulate within us the greatest wonder and awe and gravity as we stand before a God who is entirely glorious. If it doesn't do that, and it's merely a debating point about the difference between homo usios and homoousios, we missed it. Although we definitely want to affirm homoousios, I'm not saying we don't. Same in substance, not the idea is same in substance or similar in substance. Not similar, same. When we think about the doctrine of election, people will say, don't bring that up because it just divides people. I say, how in the world can it divide people? It's in the Bible. But if you sit and think about election, the old songs were right when it says, I am struck with awe and wonder and the deepest sense of affection and love that God chose me. This is not about a debate. It's about provoking the deepest sense of awe before the Lord. The deepest sense of heartfelt gratitude to God that he chose me. He set his eye upon me in eternity. The Old Testament, there's a prophecy in Isaiah which speaks about our names being written on the hand. If you just are interested in predestination because it's an interesting doctrinal point, you missed it. Because the glory of it is that God has written our name on his hand. It's to affect how we feel, how we think, how we act. So I'm trying to bring that home here because the Apostle Paul is saying to these Thessalonians, you're a bit unskillful in the Christian life. I get it because you're babies in the Lord, but you need to learn how to take that doctrine of yours Turn it loose upon your mind, your heart, your affections, your life, your actions. Because that's what happens when doctrine is properly understood. It leads us to be worshipers. It leads us to be grateful. It leads us to be full of awe. It leads us to live like Christians. Oh boy, we need that right now. This world needs us to live like Christians. Let's go to the process. We've seen the promise, and the promise is quite clear and unmistakable. God will bring those who are asleep with him. But how is it going to happen? Well, notice the clear affirmation in verse 15. We who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not perceive those who have fallen asleep. So Paul's speaking here of two kind of categories, right? There's going to be those who are alive... Well, there's those believers who are dead. And what he says is that the, the, the dead um, will not miss out. The living won't precede them in experiencing and partaking in the joy. But, but, but he does say something I think is kind of important here. He says uh, there will be a church alive on earth when Christ returns, right? Look at verse 15. For this uh, we say to you by the word of the Lord that we who are alive remain until the coming of the Lord. That word is parousia. It is used all throughout the New Testament to refer to the last day, to the second coming, the bodily return of Jesus Christ. And it says that when Jesus returns, there will be a church on earth, doesn't it? 
Now, I don't bring this in as a debating point, but a clarification point, because one of the most famous pastors in America, I just listened to a sermon about a week ago, said the day is coming when the church will be raptured off the earth and there will be nothing left but hoodlums and scoundrels here to savage one another for seven years of great tribulation. And then Jesus will return to no church at all. I'm not trying to debate it. I'm just trying to set the record straight. That's wrong. The text says when Christ returns, there will be those who are, who are believers. They will be alive. Some have picked uh, through this and said, well, the Apostle Paul makes it sound like he's going to be alive, right? He says, we. It's the, it's the we of majesty, of many, of a, of a belief group. He's not saying, I'm going to be alive. Otherwise, be condem- he would contradict himself. He says later in 2 Timothy, I'm ready to be poured out as a drink offering. He knows he's going to die before Christ returns. He's not saying that here. What he's saying is there will be a church alive on earth when Christ returns, and it will be a robust, thriving church. But the key of it is the living will not proceed, proceed the sleeping. The nub of Paul's consolation here is that those who are asleep won't miss out on anything. They will be a part of all that happens in the day of the Lord. And notice here, he says it's on the basis of divine authority. This is a really brilliant device here. The four. See that? For this we say at the beginning of this verse 15. He's looking back to the promise of verse four, uh, 14 that God will bring with him who have fallen asleep. Remember, he's speaking into the heart and to the fears and to the sorrows and the grieving of the people of God. He said, I have to tell you a truth this morning, people of God. But he says, I have to tell you, there's a great promise in the word. And the word that God has revealed is that when Christ returns, the living will not precede the dead. He bases everything upon the scripture. He says divine revelation says it, and that makes it entirely true. So how can it be? I guess this is the question, and this is really where I think the text kind of excels in the fact that it gets very particular about the mechanics of it all. And you can see that for yourself in verses 16 through 17. We'll just try to pick our way through as much as this as we need to. I think there's some great and rich detail here, but, but I want you to notice how the process of it all is unfolded. And the process being that the living will not precede the fallen asleep when Christ returns. And so we get a sort of bird's eye view now on the coming of Christ. And this is one of those texts which is full of some of the most uh, intricate detail about the return of Christ. The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead will in Christ will rise first. So here, this is the coming of the Lord. I'm going to stress that because it's saying the very same thing that verse 15 did. The word coming Lord was used there. And here it says descent. I'm only bringing that up because there are some systems of eschatology that say there's a distinction being made in our text because he doesn't repeat the word coming. Just variety. He's speaking about the very same event. He's now clarifying it. And he qualifies it in a few different ways. I want you to notice here this word shout. It is a very powerful word. I am reminded of, of Psalm 29, which we sing often uh, after our call to worship as a psalm of adoration, where it speaks about the voice of the Lord over the waters. 
And Psalm 29 is really a, a, a picturesque um, presentation of a thunderstorm coming off the Mediterranean with all the rumbling and thunder and earth-shaking force of that. And it speaks of it coming off and being seen upon the horizon out on the seas and now sweeping across the land. And as it meets with the land of Palestine, it begins to shake the earth with the power of the storm. It speaks by the, the forest twisting and, and being gnarled by the force of the winds and the power. It says that the deer of the field give birth. You, you remember the psalm, right? Well, you need to take all of the intensity there of the power, the sheer power and volume of the voice of the Lord and plug it in here. This is the voice of Christ. Christ himself speaks this way in John 5, 28. He says that the day is coming or the hour is coming in which all in the graves will hear his voice. To be able to speak so loudly you wake the dead is to speak loudly. voice of the Lord will accompany the day of the Lord. The voice of the archangel will be like a blast as well. And this is one of those peculiar texts in the Bible that speak of the archangel. There's only a couple of them. It implies there's some sort of hierarchy and subordination with the realm of the angels. But we're told that it accompanies the day of the Lord to be a display of Christ's power and his glory. It speaks of the trumpet of God here, a vast, loud, thunderous, sonorous blast. Uh, imagine how overwhelming this will be. Christ's voice, the archangel's voice, the voice of a cosmic trumpet. Do you think anybody will miss it? Not to pick on other systems again, but there's a whole theory that the whole world will, will wonder what, how in the world they miss the coming of Christ. How, how would anybody miss this? It's impossible. And the point of it is to make it clear that Christ's coming will be so clearly, visually, and audibly apparent that no one, no one will be left out. And the end of it all punctuates the real point the Apostle Paul wants to make when he says this, the dead will rise first. As if it's Christ's first order of business to call your dead body from the grave. I want you to think about that. I bet you you've been to a funeral where you helped throw dirt on a casket before. That's going to be you one of these days. I want you to hear what the apostles said with that in mind. Christ's first order of business is to shout so loud, he calls you from the grave. I hope you understand what you have is so different than the unbelieving world. The believer has a hope which is so much more powerful, so much more consoling. Your soul will go to be with the Lord, yes, but Christ's first order of business when he comes again is to rise your bag of bones from the dead and to unite it with your soul so that you will know life. The 
I can't ever remember doing a funeral when I didn't sit there and think, I hope that what I have to say today will help those who are mourning. And then I remind myself that I can't give them anything. The only thing that will help them is if this is true. People speak a lot of empty words at funerals because they don't know what else to say, and I don't blame them at all. I don't blame them at all. They're just trying to help. But what really helps is if this is true. Do you believe something this morning that is true? Because if you do, then you have something that has to absolutely grip your heart and change your life. And how you think and how you feel. Christ comes for you first. And then verse 17 says, We who are alive will remain and will be caught up to meet the Lord together. The emphasis here is on the unity of the experience, isn't it? We who are alive will experience it with those who are dead. And what the group is going to do, and it's kind of interesting, they've all been assembled together, and here's Christ ascending And they're going up. And so the question is, when this whole throng of people, this vast horde and multitude, so giant in number, we cannot conceive of it, right? It would turn the sky black. How many is it going to be? Christ ascending. What is he going to do? Is he going to make a U-turn and go back to heaven? There's a whole group of people who teach that. You make a big giant U-turn and go straight back up into heaven. But you know what? This word meat doesn't mean that. This word meat is a technical term in Greek to refer to the going outside the city gates to meet a dignitary, to sort of heap applause and honor upon them, and then to bring them back into town. <laughs> and it's used that way in Acts 28, 15. You can go read it for yourself later about... Some brothers who went out to meet Paul and brought him into the city of Rome. It doesn't mean a U-turn. Christ isn't going to descend just far enough to capture this whole throng and lead him back into heaven. Christ is going to go out there to receive the adoration, the praise, and the worship. And then we're coming straight here to earth. That's what it means. And then the text leaves you with this specific. So we will always be with the Lord. Doesn't it leave you... uh, with just enough that you're curious. It does. But the curiosity isn't the key. The promise is. So we will ever be with the Lord. If I know that, I know enough, right? If I know that, I know enough. It doesn't say me. It says we. We will all be with the Lord. His church will. No one's left out. We all partake in the same joyful, wondrous blessing. And then Paul does what he so often does. Verse 18, therefore. Dare I repeat it? Therefore. He has given us a a tour de force in doctrine about the last day. Just so that none of us here this morning missed it. 
he did something that is so typically St. Paul. Therefore. Just to make sure that in case you didn't get the message, <laughs> there is something for you in all of this. Comfort one another with these words. Are you struck this morning? These are not just words. These are ideas of the greatest and most comprehensive significance. They're not just words. They clothe ideas of enormous, immense reach. And these words, he says, you're to take up and unleash upon yourself and one another. They're not to just be left there, not to just be admired, not to just be understood. They lived, applied, comfort one another with these words. Rehearse them, think through them, be comforted by them because of their truth, because of their certainty because of the irreversible nature of the promise which they speak to. This is great. I hope we understand this morning that our text isn't just meant for a funeral. Canon and should be used for that. It's for us right now, today. You don't have to be grieving over the recent passing of a loved one in Christ to make this text meaningful. Because this text is full of meaning for all of us right now here this morning. Because this text is designed to fill us with hope. And hope is a distinguishing feature of the believer. And hope is fuel for the Christian life. The Apostle Paul says something. I already cited a portion of the text in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I said uh, he made the contrast between the body and the soul being absent from the body and being with the Lord. Two verses before that, here's what he said. We're always of good courage. We're always of good courage. Believers are always of good courage. I can't find anywhere in the New Testament or the Bible where I'm told to not be of good courage. You think about that. If you're a believer, you are to be of good courage. One of the most deeply distressing seasons of my life, I memorized the uh, 2 Timothy 1.6, the Apostle Paul said to Timothy, God did not give you a spirit of fear, power, of love, of sound mind. Because we are to be of good courage. And the reason we're to be of good courage, the Apostle Paul goes on to say, because we make it our ambition to please him. As if to say there's no way to make it our ambition to please the Lord, to serve him well, unless we are of good courage. 
So how do you have good courage? Well, you have good courage because of your hope. You're in Christ. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, so you are to be of good courage. This isn't just for funerals, it's for every day of your life. It's for every single day of your life so that you take that hope and you connect it to your life and you be of good courage so that you make it your ambition to please God. You can't do it without it. So the world right now, what's it saying? It's speaking messages into our ears that are full of doom. The media spews out a litany of horrors which are about ready to pounce on you every moment of the day. You might just be the next victim. Around us appears to be kind of full of dread. But you're a believer. You're to be of good courage. That good courage is to is to strengthen you to make it your ambition to please God. That's the station you are called to right now. Every single day of your life. And the way you do that is just exactly how the Apostle Paul lays it out here for the Thessalonians. To take that vast deposit of doctrine and to sink it up and link it to your life. And to let that truth settle into your heart and strengthen your soul so that you are of good courage. And as you have good courage, it'll be your ambition to please the Lord. So that means that it's our duty as God's people this morning as we hear this to make it our aim to be a people of the book. That its comfort will be our, our comfort. So that we'll be of good courage. Father, we thank you for your word and how it speaks so directly and relevantly to our life. Lord, uh, we need this. We need to have this word spoken into our ears and our hearts and our minds so much because we're so full of our own sins. Because of our own sins, we have a lot of darkness and deception and misunderstanding and corrupt and broken thinking. So correct all of that now with your word and your spirit. Take your word and Cause it to settle into our hearts and to bless us. To remind us of the glory of our hope, the majesty of our King, and the promise which awaits. May all of that, Lord, fill us with courage that we may stand before you and live well for Christ right now today. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We respond to 